great to be with you this morning. It truly is. I've known your interim pastor, Steve Dighton, for 30 years. I was working, planned. By the way, I, I did start in 78, but this is absolutely true. I was 18, all right? So I want you thinking, how old is that guy, all right? So 18, you do the math. I'm not that old, all right? But I was 18 when, when uh, uh, God allowed me to plant my first church my uh, freshman year in college. And uh, it was, uh, yeah, 18-year-olds. It was fun. Anyway, that's another story for another day. But for most of my life, I've been your home missionary and your North American, North American board missionary, as you just heard. And so for most of my life, including right now, your cooperative program gifts, your gifts to the Annie Armstrong offering make my ministry possible. And I am deeply grateful. And after 30 years of planting churches and leading in church planting regionally and nationally, um, God has moved me to the point now where I am working diligently at replanting and reclaiming dying churches. And I do want you to know this morning that as Southern Baptists, we see the closure of 900 churches every single year. I'm not sure you were aware of that. All across North America, 4,000 Protestant churches close their doors every single year. The majority of the Southern Baptist churches that close, 77% of them are in communities of over 100,000 people. And so our job, our task, is to do everything we can to make sure that doesn't happen and to reclaim them and replant them for God's glory and the joy of the remaining members. And God has blessed our work, and in the last three or four years, we've seen two or hundred or so more churches a year that would have closed their doors, that have found new life and new purpose and new meaning, and once again are reaching their neighborhood, growing and making much of God and glorifying the gospel. So I thank you for your investment in North American missions and uh, in the Annie Armstrong offering that makes that possible. I was actually in New Mexico last weekend. I was down at your Savelle's Baptist camp in uh, Cloudcroft, New Mexico. I led a conference for bivocational pastors and their wives in New Mexico and had a wonderful time down there in southern New Mexico. So uh, two weekends in a row back here in, in Albuquerque. I live in Kansas, you know, Kansas, Missouri, if you know, it's, it's two different places, right? So uh, I'm over on the Kansas side. And someone said they saw me out there this morning, thought my car was broken down. I was taking pictures of the mountains in the valley. We don't have mountains and valleys in Kansas. <laughs> if your dog runs away from home three days later, you can still see him. So <laughs> it's, um... So I love coming out here. And listen, I'm a huge bluegrass music fan. I'm a member of the International... I'm going to preach. Don't worry about it. I'm a member of the International <laughs> Bluegrass Music Association. And I promote bluegrass music in Kansas City and put on some bluegrass festivals. And I get on the plane last night in Houston, change, and across the aisle from me was Mr. Marty Stewart. I know, I know. Guy played with Lester Flatt. Man, I mean, guys have done everything. And I'm sitting there thinking, what do I do? You know, do I bother him? Do I freak out? Do I make a scene? Do I just act like I've done this before and I don't even, I mean, so... I bothered him. I didn't make a scene, but I did bother him, and he was nice and gave me an autograph, and I got my picture with him, so it was already a good day before I left the airport, so there you go, and uh, I do have a podcast with Tom Rayner every Thursday called Revitalize and Replant, so if you just look up podcast Revitalize and Replant, Dr. Rayner and I do a podcast every Thursday, and then I do every Monday night, I do a Monday with Mark on Facebook, and actually a couple of you came up and said you, you've seen that, so uh, I appreciate that very much. Man, I'm looking forward to being here. Looking forward to opening God's Word. So take your Bibles and let's look together 
the Gospel of Luke. My father was a Southern Baptist pastor, and my great-grandfather was a Southern Baptist pastor and director of missions in rural North Missouri. I grew up as a royal ambassador, where I would do my best to become a well-informed, responsible follower of Christ. <laughs> Any royal ambassadors here? Anybody? Anybody say that with me? To keep myself clean and healthy in mind and body? To learn how the message of Christ is carried around the world? To work with others sharing Christ? Okay, I forgot the last line. But nonetheless, that's not bad. But as a royal ambassador, I remember being an RA when I was a little kid and, and learning this story. And I remember our royal ambassador leader telling us this story. And I'd heard the Good Samaritan a little bit growing up, you know, from time to time. But that, our, that royal ambassador leader unpacked it for me. And, and I've, this story's always been important in my life. And there are a few stories in the Bible that if you were just literally walk out on the street, most anyone, even the most secular people, if you said Good Samaritan... They know it means somebody who helps somebody. I mean, they know that. I mean, it's one of those stories that has broken through and reached out to the culture. Although, it is far more than that. And the real problem with the story of the Good Samaritan is we're so familiar with it, we don't really see it, if that makes any sense. So let's look at it this morning, maybe in a new and wonderful way. You know, I've, I've been a believer, a Christian, since I was six years old and, and uh, grew up in church, as I said, and my father passed away a couple of years ago at the age of 90 after pastoring for 50 plus years. And in the last few weeks of his life, he uh, couldn't see very well and couldn't move very well. But we got him a large print Bible and a big magnifying glass. And he would sit there and read God's word. Because it doesn't matter how long you've been alive, doesn't matter how much you've studied God's word, it never loses its beauty and it never loses its wonder. It's like a beautiful diamond. You look at it, you think, that's gorgeous. And then you turn it just a little bit, and it catches the light differently. You think, well, it's even more beautiful, and it's even more beautiful. And that's what is so glorious about our gospel. Never go weary of it. And these stories, sometimes, perhaps we take them for granted. We think, well, we know what that story means. Oh, there's so much truth in this parable. So let's dive down in it together once again in Luke Chapter 10, and we'll begin reading with the 25th verse. Luke chapter 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to have eternal life? Well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer said, Well, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Well, first of all, it's interesting the lawyer is concerned about eternal life. As we grow older, we all become concerned about what happens to us when we die. And there was a lot of discussion among the Jews in those days whether there was life after death and how do I inherit this eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you know the law, obey it. Now, we know at the root of this, as we see, we look at the scripture from Genesis to the map in the back, that that's the problem, right? None of us can obey the law for our lifetime. None of us can obey all the law for a day. None of us can obey all the law for a half a day. And the wages of one sin is death. So Jesus isn't saying here, listen, the way to have eternal life is just simply to, to be nice and live along, get, be nice with people and get along and do well and hope your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That's not what the scripture says. What do I have to do? You have to obey the law. Well, what's the law say? Well, the lawyer knows. And he gets to the part about 
Love your neighbors yourself. Ah, now that's where the lawyer wants to draw the line. Where, where's the definition of my neighbor, see? How far out does my love and compassion have to extend? Is it just my immediate family? Is it my, my neighborhood? Is it people who are just acting and behaving and, and in my worldview? I mean, has there ever been a better time to talk about this text than the world we live in today? Who really is our neighbor? So Jesus answers him with a story. And by the way, verse 29, gospel writer Luke says, he did, he did this to justify himself. He was trying to justify that he was living a good and righteous life. None of us are righteous. So Jesus answered him with this story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, there was a priest going down that road, and we saw him. He passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I want you to do something with me. I want you to, everybody, just make this sound, all right? Go, <gasps> like you're surprised, all right? Do it, ready? One, two, three. Okay, when I read the word Samaritan, you do that. Seriously. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, that's exactly what would have happened. You think I'm kidding. They were hated and despised by the Jews for reasons that go back generations. Religious conflict, racial conflict. When, when Jesus was probably a small boy, some of the, some of the, the Samaritans came down from the mountains and took some, some animals' bones and threw them into the temple courtyard and desecrated the temple in Jerusalem. So what did the young men in Jerusalem do? They went up and burned down the temple in Samaria. They hated each other. Jews would walk around Samaria instead of going through it. And probably up to this point, the crowd is really with Jesus because Jesus is saying they have all understand what it means, what it feels like to, to have someone they know or perhaps them fall upon really difficult situation, be beat and be left aside the road. It did happen. Unfortunate things. And, and probably most of Jesus' listeners, when he said a priest came by and passed by on their side, they would have said, yes, give it to him. We know what those priests are like. They wear all the right clothes. They say all the right things. They obey all the right rules. They look down on us. But they're just hypocrites. We've all been treated that way by the priest. And he says a Levite, who was the family of Levi, who took care of the temple, had special privileges like that. No doubt they would have thought, yeah, that's how a Levite acts. And probably some of them are thinking, now he's going to, you know, it's just an average Jew comes along. But that's not what he says. A Samaritan. See, when we talk about good Samaritans, we, we, in, even our mind, we think of the Samaritan in our mind frame as something that's good and, and wonderful. They would have thought just the opposite. The Samaritan came to him where he was and saw him. And then the hinge upon which this whole passage swings is this word. 
he had, here's the word, compassion. What was the difference between the priest and the Levite and the Samaritan? It wasn't training. It wasn't equipping. It wasn't knowledge. It wasn't time. It wasn't money. It wasn't talent. It wasn't ability. It was compassion. The priest and the Levite had none. How can 900 Southern Baptist churches close their doors surrounded by people who need to know Jesus every single year? There are a lot of reasons, but chief among them is we look a lot more like the priest and the Levite than we look like the Samaritan. We lack compassion. Oh, we're compassionate about some things. We're compassionate about how people treat us in church. <laughs> we're not compassionate about that. I'd say we're passionate about some things. We're passionate about how people may treat us in church. We're passionate about some of the things we may like about our church. And passionate about not seeing some things change in our church. But are we compassionate about the people who are so wounded outside the church? Now take a look at this guy who's wounded. First of all, he can do nothing for the Samaritan. He's got nothing to offer him. He's been completely robbed. He doesn't even have any clothing. And of course, in that century, clothing was very expensive. It was hard to make, and people took it from you. So he had not even his clothes or his money or anything, and he was going to die if he was left alone. He had nothing to offer. One of the things we have to look at in the world is we've got to see that that's who we are to God. We got nothing to bring to him. We got nothing to offer him. And we look at people around us who, whose lives are a mess, whose lives are chaotic, whose lives are difficult and challenging. It should remind us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us and sought us out. And we bring nothing to the table. God doesn't need anything from us. But yet he loves us. And so the Samaritan looked at this one who'd been beaten to a bloody pulp and it, he had compassion on him. It begins with compassion. And listen, the more you and I, those of us, I would assume most of us in this room this morning are, are believers in Jesus Christ. We've been redeemed. He's opened our eyes. He's drawn us to him in salvation. We have a regenerate heart. But sometimes we live in an evangelical bubble, sort of a, a culture we create on our own, and we don't really encounter and deal much with people outside of that. And we can become hard-hearted and callous toward the world. And we forget just how much Jesus has done for us. I deal all of my, my ministry now is mostly with churches that are barely hanging on, just a handful of people remaining. Oh, one time they were thriving and growing and, and quite large, but over the years, they made decisions they shouldn't have made. They failed to make decisions they should have made. Jesus has a plan for every church. At some point, they began to follow their plan rather than his plan. Because his plan often requires, does require sacrifice and, and adjustment of our own agendas to his agenda. So I spend a lot of my time with churches that are really about to close. You think, how in the world can that happen? And sometimes there's a little bit of this in those churches. Well, you know how much I've done for this church in the last 40 years. 
You know how much I've given. You know how much I've worked. You know what I've been through. Well, that's great. I, good. But you know, in terms of eternity, you could, you could, you could camp out at a church and live here. We, we, you could build a room in the back and never leave the building. You could open it and close it. You could take every dollar you ever earn and give it to the church. You could take your 401k and cash it in and give it to the church. And all of that would not buy you 30 seconds in heaven. What saves you is Jesus. So it's not nearly as important what I've done for Jesus in the last 40 years as it is what Jesus has done for me in the last 40 seconds and will continue to do for me. Because all of my salvation, all of my home in heaven, all of my rescue from hell is all because of him, none of it because of me. And when I realize that, that tends to give me more compassion on other people because I see in them who I am. And no doubt that was the heart of compassion in the Samaritan. He saw in this, this beat up, nearly dead man, that, that's, that's who I could be. And if I was in that situation, I would want someone to help me. And so marinating in the gospel, spending time every day at the foot of the cross, not thinking about like Martha did, Lord, don't you care how much I'm doing for you? But rather like Mary, whom Jesus said, knows the one thing that will what? Never be taken from her. By the way, and we're all human and we all do it, but if that thought ever pops into your head, God, don't you care how much I'm doing? Don't these people care? That's probably not put there by the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying. <laughs> so what did he do when he saw him? Based on compassion. And again, compassion for the believer begins with an understanding of the gospel that I am worth nothing. I have nothing to offer. I was hopeless and helpless. And Jesus sought me out and saved me and redeemed me and cleaned me up and made me his own, adopted me into his family, wrote my name in the Lamb's book of life, has gone and prepared a place for me in his father's house and has promised that where he is, he will come and receive me, that I will be there with him for all eternity. That's what I've received for nothing that I could bring. And so the most generous people in the neighborhood, the most generous people in the city, the most generous people in your family, the most generous people in your workplace should be those who've been dealt most generously with. And no one's been dealt more generously with than those of us who have been redeemed, are being redeemed, and will be redeemed for all eternity. So how can we pass by on the other side? How can we not be broken and hurting for our cities and our communities and our neighborhoods with people who don't know Jesus because their lives are a mess. And the priest and the Levite knew, maybe I should stop, but if I stop, where's it going to end? You know, i got a life to live here. And if I stop, I'm going to get engaged in this guy and where's it going to end up and I'm just going to keep on going. After all, it's not my problem. But the compassion that the Samaritan had caused him to do, and I don't know where I first heard these things. I heard them a long, long time ago. I've never forgotten them. First thing he did was bending. His compassion caused him to bend. Now, when we get older, it's a little harder to bend. Amen? If I wasn't like in front of a big church, normally I preach to like nine people. So this is really different for me. You think I'm kidding. 
And if I wasn't on live stream, I would bend for you right now. But I'm not going to do that because if I did, I might not get up. But bending, the older we get, the harder it is. But the, the work with the, the man who had been beaten began when the Samaritan did something the priest and the Levite wouldn't do. And that was bend down and get where he was. Bend down and get into the dirt. The road is dirty. Animals travel on the road. People travel on. The road was dirty. The man was filthy. He was covered in blood. And it begins when we're willing to get down and bend and humble ourselves. Nothing is above us. We're not too good to do any job in the church. We're not too good to serve anybody. Because Jesus held nothing back from us when he died on the cross. Why do I want to hold anything back? So bending. Bending does mean adjusting your life, changing. You know, I love Henry Blackaby. I was so fortunate those years I worked at the home mission board early on. He was my neighbor in my subdivision and got to know him so well. And if you know anything about experiencing God, if you don't get to know experiencing God, what a great Bible study. And one of the things Henry talks about is that God is always at work around us all the time. And it's so true. He's at work at every home in Albuquerque. And our job is to find out where he's at work and join him in that work. But when we see where he's at work, that is his invitation for us to join him in that work. And that invitation causes in us a crisis of faith. Am I going to be obedient and make adjustments in my life to follow Jesus and his work? Or am I not going to make those adjustments in my life? And adjustments can mean my finances, and I'm going to, am I going to be more generous, my time, am I going to rearrange my schedule so I can serve more, my hospitality, hospitality? am I going to invite neighbors and friends into my home and share things with them, am I going to adjust my comfort zone, bending, it began with bending, and not only did he bend down there, verse 34, he bound up his wounds, pouring on them oil and wine. Now, I, you know, I don't want to read too much into the text here. It's a story. That it's a, and those days, that's how you would have cleaned a wound. You would have put, put wine on it to disinfect it, the stinging, and then the oil to soothe it. <laughs> but I, I can't help but when I see that, at least devotionally to me, this, this speaks of the fact that while, while we care about the, the human needs of people and, and the Christ-like thing to do is to meet their human needs, their ultimate need is a sin need. And the remedy for sin is the blood of Christ, the wine, which is always symbolic of that. And then the Holy Spirit is always a symbol of the oil. So it's like... It's like we, 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 we meet these people who are wounded and beaten and we share the love of Jesus with them and, and, and Jesus' blood cleanses them of their sin and the Holy Spirit comes and comforts them. That's just, again, devotionally, I, I see that oil and wine there just jumps out at me. But what he did, after bending, he was mending. <laughs> he actually touched his hurting places. He actually got his own hands dirty. He, he actually mended those wounds. He didn't just bend down and go, hey man, praying for you, but I got to run. And I don't imagine, let's be honest, I don't imagine he had a first aid kit with him, all right? I doubt it. 
And as I said, cloth and things were, were pretty rare. So he probably had to tear some of his own clothing or something he had that was important to him and use it to, and his own wine and his own oil, his own resources that cost. He had to use his own resources on this one. So it was bending and then it was tending. Excuse me, mending. Now you know my third point, don't you? <laughs> Which was tending. Not only bending and mending, but tending. He put him on his own donkey. And now he's walking. Look, five minutes ago, he was riding along on his way on a journey. He sees this one, and now his journey is completely interrupted. He's probably torn some of his own clothes. He's already poured some of his own wine and oil on him. And now he's picking him up and putting him on his own donkey, and he's walking. Where does he go? He brought him to an inn. Don't lose this. The last part of verse 32, 34. And took care of him. Bending, mending, and tending. He couldn't just walk away from him that night. He would have died still. So he had to stay up with him all night long. He had to bring water to him, try to feed him, had to clean him up, had to keep changing the bandages. I doubt that he got much sleep that night. To a total stranger, the reality of which most Jews, not only would they not have done that to a Samaritan in terms of helping them, a lot of Jews would have beaten the Samaritan up and left him for dead. Just because the world hates us doesn't give us a pass not to love them. One of the reasons churches die is because they say, well, you know, the neighborhood doesn't respond like it used to. No, but it's responding. The neighborhood just doesn't like us anymore. But that's not our problem. We're to love the neighborhood even when they don't like us. Even when they don't love us. So tending. Took care of him. Oh, the church is a wonderful place for people who are broken and beaten up and bruised by life. Have all kinds of time to be tended to, to care for, to get healed, to get well, to grow. And we all heal at different rates. But not only was it bending and mending and tending, <laughs> but he told the innkeeper, take care of him. He gave the innkeeper two denarii. Jesus put money in this story, by the way. He gave him two denarii, which is spending. I mean, what we spend our resources on, what we spend our money on, is an indication of what we think is important. And what we spend our money on is what we care about. And one of the reasons some people don't care a lot about their church is they don't spend much money here. They don't give a lot, so they don't really care much about it. And one of the reasons some people don't care that much about people who are hurting and people who are dying and missions and our needs is because we don't, we don't give a lot there. I mean, the priest and Levite didn't give anything. They didn't care. But this man, his bending led to mending, which led to tending, which led to spending. It's all connected. But not only spending his money... Again, which he'll never get back. He, that's not his point. 
But he says something really unusual. Jesus adds this to the story. Remember, Jesus is adding these points to the story for you and I to hear today in Albuquerque in 2019. Not only spending, but this is just blows me away. Take care of him. And whatever... You want to underline something, highlight something in your Bible? Whatever you spend, whatever it takes. Okay, this story begins with the lawyer saying, okay, where do I draw the line? <laughs> What's the limit of my love? <laughs> Who's my neighbor? It's got to be a line there somewhere, Jesus. It can't go on forever. And it ends with this one, which is whatever it costs. I have no limit on what I'll spend for this stranger. None. He didn't say, here's two denarii. And by the way, here's, when I come back, I'll give you six more, eight more, ten more. He said, whatever it takes. Let me tell you something. When God looked down from heaven at you and me and saw that we had sinned, and because of our sin, we became objects of God's wrath. And our relationship with God was forever broken. And the only thing God could do with us was to utterly throw us into hell as sinners. And believe me, Jesus spoke more about hell than anybody in the New Testament. It is a real place. And there's nothing you and I could do to escape it. And when God sent his only son, Jesus, he's in the garden that night. You remember what Jesus said to the Father? He says, Lord, let this cup pass from me. He began to sweat drops of blood. He knew, look, he knew not only was he going to be nailed physically to a cross, which was painful enough, but the real pain and the real suffering that is absolutely unimaginable happened when the sky became dark. And the darkness of the sky in the middle of the day when Jesus was being crucified, was not the absence of God. God didn't turn his back on his son. That was the arrival of God's wrath. God's wrath for every sin that every person who will be a Christian would ever commit in all of human history at one instant was poured out upon his own son. For every lie, for every robbery, for every murder, for every prideful thought, for every hideous crime that would ever be confessed and repented of, at that moment, God took all of that wrath of the holy God of the universe and focused it all on his son. And he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The suffering we cannot imagine that our Savior went through. And so when Jesus is in the garden and he says, what? let this cup pass from me, and, it, and there's no response, and then Jesus says, all right. Thy will be done. You know what that means? Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes to save Mark from hell, there's no limit. Whatever it takes to save you from hell and give you heaven, I'm not holding anything back. God forgive us when we kind of act like the lawyer and go, well, what's, what should we, you know, what's the limit of our generosity? What's the limit of what we should do? Jesus shows us here for the Samaritan, it was not only bending and mending and tending and spending but it rhymes i'm not sure it works but it rhymes lending <laughs> i mean giving for the future with an open open-ended amount 
Because God held nothing back from us. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. He spared not his own son. So verse 36. Which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor of him who fell among the robbers? Now the the lawyer can't even say the word Samaritan. He just said, well, the one who showed mercy. And there's one more word after lending. And it's an important word. Jesus said, go and do likewise. And that's sending. Oh, what's God's will for my life? I, mean, I, I used to, I was a youth leader for, seemed like nine years, but it's really just nine months. But nonetheless, it's, <laughs> Everybody, everybody, it's like fast food. Everybody ought to work in youth ministry, so you appreciate what it takes. But uh, Youth ministry and other ministry. And I've, I've often had people ask me, what's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my life? Oh, I'll tell you what God's will for your life is. Right here. Do what the Good Samaritan did. I don't care if you live in Albuquerque, if you, get a, if you move to Kansas City, or if, if you, if you, whatever job you have, whatever school you go to. Sometimes we freak out thinking, I gotta be, you know, where, where, where's the exact school God wants me to go? Listen, I really believe he's far less concerned about the exact school you go to or the exact job you take or the exact city you live in as he is what you do once you get there. It's pretty clear what God's will for your life is. To be someone who has compassion on people who could do nothing for you, who need Jesus so much that you're willing to stop your agenda and bend and tend and mend and spend and lend and get involved in their life and do for them what Jesus has done for you. And frankly, a church that will make this their DNA is a church that will glorify God and will not close its doors. And frankly, a believer that will make this their pattern of life is actually a joyful believer. Because there's no joy in being made much of. I'm already a minute over. I'm, I'm, I'm AARP, all right? I am. I get the stuff in the mail. I got something in the mail yesterday. My wife's about five years younger than me. So... And the older we get, that seems like a larger spread for some reason. We men age more anyway. Or at least we can't cover it up like they do. But anyway, I got this thing in the mail. And she said, what is it? I said, oh, it's just. And she said, what is it? I just, she said, let me see it. So, and it was something for like hip replacements. I'm fine. I don't have any hip problems that I know of. But I'm on somebody's mailing list because I guess I'm old enough to be involved in Hip replacements. So it's like, well, thank you for that. So I'm old. I get it. And I get curmudgeon-y. I get it. I'm, 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 I'm almost to the point of saying, hey, get off my lawn. I mean, I'm almost there. You know, I, I'm curmudgeon-y. I have to fight that. But I, I do serve as a transitional pastor. That's what I do. I'm a member of Lenexa Baptist where Steve pastored for 30 years. And they have a Saturday night service. and My wife and I attend there. But on Sundays, I work in various churches for a year or two at a time and help them transition. Uh, and I'm a transitional pastor. And most of the churches I work in are struggling and having some difficulty. And invariably, at some point, someone in that church or groups in that church will come to me and will say something along the lines of, well, you know, we're the older generation. 
And you can't forget about us. And I want to say, dear saint, in 40 years of being a Christian, haven't you learned there's no joy in being made much of? There's only joy in making much of Jesus. It's a little bit like Martha who says, don't you care of everything I'm doing? Of course he cares. Jesus hasn't forgotten your 40 years of service. He loves you more than you could ever possibly imagine. And what awaits you and I in heaven is something we could never, ever deserve. We're already going to get so much more than we deserve. And our life on this earth is like a vapor. It's like a fog. Sometimes I think I'm one flu season from heaven. And I just want to make sure that what I leave in my wake is the gospel implanted in the hands of the next generation. And I would say, whatever it takes to do that is what Jesus wants us to do. And if that means we have to adjust our lives, release some of our comfort, give up some things we value for God's glory... Ultimately, it'll be for your joy. I went to a church called Warner Road Baptist Church in Kansas City in 2006. 18 people in a sanctuary that seated 610. I knew it seated 610 because above the door, fire door it said fire code 610. So I knew I could squeeze 592 more in there if I needed to. And it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. You tried to preach to 18 people in the building that seat 610, and it was, it was rough. And, and uh, it was a long go of it. And there were 18 elderly people. They loved Jesus, and they loved their church, but they had long ago uh, disconnected from the neighborhood. And so uh, through the process of replanting that church, we had to make a lot of changes that were, were very different and very drastic, but were very meaningful in the lives of the community. And over time, we began to reach... Lots of young families, once again, in the church over a period of time grew and became filled not only with older folks, but younger folks, multi-generation. It was a glorious place to be. Fast forwarding, when I first got there, one of the only men left in the church was a man named Forrest Lowe. He was a, he was a World War II veteran, and he would sit on the front row every Sunday morning, passed out our bulletins, and he'd been at that church really since the Truman administration, and that's absolutely true. And uh, he'd seen all the changes in the church, and, and he... he he, resist, he was so, he didn't like change. None of us like change. I don't like change. I wish, I wish in my home I had the phone I grew up with, which was a dial phone with a cord that could go to every room in the house. It would be so much simpler than the smartphones we have today. But we got to deal with change, all right? So sometimes when we get to church, it's the one place we don't want change because everything else in our life is changing. And that was sort of forced. Everything else was changing. The church was the same. He didn't want it to change, but we began to change it. And God love him. He stuck there. He stuck with it. And he went through all the hard changes with us. And, and I talked with him and prayed with him, and there were times he said, I don't, I don't understand what we're doing. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing that? It's not how we used to do it. But he began to grow in his love for it. Forrest, his wife was an invalid the whole time I was there and homebound. They had no children. He had no siblings, and she had no siblings. So one day I get a phone call, and Forrest said, my wife has passed away, and I went down to the funeral home to meet him, and we worked on the funeral arrangements and I asked the funeral director, I said, Who's, who are the pallbearers? And he said, well, Forrest doesn't have any. He's been retired for years. There's no children. There's no cousins. There's no family. And just some of us here at the funeral home are going to do it. And I said, Forrest, you don't need to do that. We, we've got some young men in our church now that could do that. He said, oh, I don't want to bother them. They all have jobs and they all have families. And 
They didn't know her. She never attended church. She was an invalid. So I just get on my phone, and I just text a couple of our young elders. They're in their 20s. <laughs> and uh, yeah, you actually can't have elders in your 20s, by the way. So they were in their 20s. And um, said, hey, Forrest, funeral is a couple of days away. Could you come maybe help be a pallbearer? Got there that day at the funeral on the back row were these five or six young elders from Warner Road that five years ago had never been in that church. And they were even dressed in suits. I'd never seen them in a suit before. They looked great. They had all taken time off work. Forrest saw them too. When it came time to take his dear wife's mortal remains from that funeral home out to the funeral car, it was those six young men who five years ago had not been in that church who picked her up and carried her out. When we got to the cemetery, it was those six young men that five years ago had not been in that church that carried her from the funeral car to the gravesite. And then most importantly, when the gravesite was completed, it was those six young men who got around that 80-some-year-old widow or now and hugged him and prayed with him as he wept and cried and realized they were young men who cared for him. That's where he found his joy. There's joy when you do those things. Forrest found joy in reaching out to that next generation and doing whatever it takes. Ultimately, not only was God glorified in the community coming to the church, but Forrest found joy in that as well. Father, if there's one here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, may this be the hour and the day when they respond to you. Open their eyes and draw them to you. Let them know that they are just like the one who's beaten and left beside of the road. They could do nothing for themselves. They are facing eternal death and damnation. But you are here, Lord, and you will bend to them and, and mend them and <laughs> provide for them if they'll repent of their sin and call you Lord. Most of us in this room are your children, and if we be honest, we have a lack of compassion on anybody who's not like us. And we begin to think that what we want is more important than what the world needs. So Lord, give us a heart of compassion for the world so that we can't just walk on by any longer. So that we'll bend and mend and tend and spend and even lend and do whatever it takes. And every time we do that, remind us, Lord, that we serve a Savior who did and does whatever it takes to save us, to keep us, to redeem us. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to take just a few minutes. You process what you've heard. And by all means, you saw this wonderful young lady baptized by her father. If you've never followed the Lord in scriptural baptism, you may say, well, I'm a Christian, but you know, I've never done that. That's the first step in obedience. You need to do that. You need to do that. And what a great time. If you're, you may be 80 years old. You think, I've never done that. You just saw a young girl do it. What a great Sunday morning to walk down here and take the hand of one of these pastors and say, I want to do that. I want to do that. Looking for a church to join, make this a church home. They would be glad to pray with you and talk with you about that. Or if you just want to pray with one of these pastors about making some adjustments in your life to be more compassionate, to do whatever it takes they'd be delighted to pray with you about that. Or do your business with the Lord right where you are right now as we wait just a few moments. You step out and come, you pray where you are as the music plays.
invitation is never complete till the moment we die. So, Lord, I pray if there's one here today that needs you, that they will seek out someone today. Talk to them about you. Repent of their sin. Pray. Ask you to save them. And then tell someone about it. There's some folks in this room that do need to follow you in scriptural baptism, Lord. Motivate them and convict them of their need to do that. There's some people who need to make this their church home. You're calling them. You're building your body here. So call them to do that. But Lord, like so many of us, I stand front and center, first in line to say, I need to adjust my heart. And I need to live a life that's more compassionate, more caring, that reflects your love to a world. It's so easy for me, Father, to focus on myself and think only of my convenience and what I want. And it's so easy for me to think if I'm just made much of, that will bring me joy. And that is Satan. That my only joy is making much of you and seeing others make much of you. Man, if I don't understand anything else today, let me leave here today knowing that and embracing that truth. And it's the glorious name of your risen Son, Jesus, that we pray these things. And for the sake of the gospel, amen.